0: while it isn't wrong to go to the scriptures to find how you can make better decisions in life, the scriptures at its core are more accurately a roadmap for making it clear how we can know who God is. What he has done And what he accompl- and what he wants to accomplish in the world. You've heard me, if you've been around here any, any length of time, you've heard me say this. The scripture is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about me. There are things that happen in your life that become helpful as you believe and you study the scripture. But the scripture primarily isn't about helping you. It's about making clear who God is and in light of who God is and what he's done, then you can begin to understand who you actually are and what God wants to accomplish in the world. And so saying that, I know that we're starting a series that promises (laughs) this idea of helping you in your relationships. And so before we actually dive into maybe some of those super practical things, We'll get into those in the weeks to come. Today, I really just want to talk about this idea of well, then what does the scripture have to say about who God is? And then how does that even inform our relationships? Like, what does that have to do with our relationships? Because I'm, I'm sure no one in the middle of trying to sort out their problems in their relationships, I, I'm sure nobody in the middle of an argument is like, hey, hold on a second. I know you're totally upset with me right now, but let's just talk about what we need to know about God. Like, nobody does that. Like, I didn't leave the toilet seat up, and my wife doesn't come screaming and going, ah! who's God? <laughs> you are, <laughs> obviously. Um, right? That's not what, that's not what we, we talk about. Like I mean, who does that, right? I mean, like practically, who does that, like, right? nobody really does that. But what if we did? Like, not in like the super corny way, like, oh, you know, let's hey, let's stop, let's talk about. Like, what if we? What if at every juncture in our life, where it feels like everything is anything but heaven on earth, what if at? any of those junctures we find ourselves fighting to answer the question not who's right who's wrong but just those i'm not saying ignore those questions Those those are sometimes things you have to figure out but before we let the the conflict boil and we let the the tension rise what if we ask The question, who is God and what has he done? Not because that answer specifically addresses what's going on, but because it actually centers our hearts and recenters our perspective on how God wants to see the world. Because only when we understand who God is and what he has done, can we begin to have a right understanding of who we are and what God wants to accomplish through our lives. So this is, I think I've said this over and over and over again. I I wonder if these are one of these things that, like, when I I tell my kids, like, I don't know if you get this, like, but this is how it is. Like, one of the basic tenets of understanding the Christian life is that we view our life through the realities of who God is and what He's done, and 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 it cannot cannot come from like your. Like, you know, what do I think God is? Well, I think, I think, I think God, you know, is, you know, I think he, his favorite color is blue. I just, you know, because he's in heaven and heaven's blue. And, you know, if God, you know, I, I think, I think God wears Air Jordans because, you know, he knows who the real goat is. He'd never wear really there. You know, like, like, we just can't, we just can't make stuff up. Well, we have to understand who God is and what he has done. And in other words, in order for us to answer the question, you know, why and what am I here for? We need to understand what, well, not really what, we need to understand who God is and what God has done, which is why we started at the beginning of the story of our existence, of humankind's existence. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, if you happen to be fluent in biblical Hebrew, not me, um, you know that this is a Hebrew word often used to talk generally about mankind. It is eventually a word, it's a Hebrew word, Adam, and then it eventually becomes a proper noun, capital A, to give direct, um, definition to this singular person who was made first, <laughs> named Adam, right? But what we need to know is that the Hebrew word for man is actually a generic term for mankind that later becomes a proper name, Adam. But, so that's, that's, put a pin there. Back to the question, who is God and what God has done based on this passage of scripture um, who is god then he is what god is what creator good 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 and then um, um, we'll have the cheat sheet up here i got a second question are you ready for it ready okay so god's creator so what has god done based on this verse he did what in what Created what? He did what? Okay, so who is God? He is the creator. And what has he done? He's in his image. Okay. So important for us to remember. So important, so important, so important. But the obvious next question is this. Why did God create us? in his image. Ever thought about that? <clears throat> like, I think we talk about, we sing about, you know, I'm a child of God. That's who I am. You know? Um, but even sometimes songs like that don't even say, like, well, what's... Yes, I'm I'm not forsaken. You know, I'm, I am who you say I am. But, like, why? You ever wondered... Like, why? Why among all creation were we made? Why were you made in the image of God? In the theological world, there is this phrase that is tied to image of God called "amago dei. It's Latin for image of God. And it's a doctrine that states that It's basically this, that that all humans are the deepest expression of God's glory and the greatest display of his power and sovereignty as creator to make all things, as he did in the beginning, what? Good. See, some of you do listen to me over the years. Thank you, right? Because in the beginning, God created, and then he said it was what? Good. It was good. And some of you that's actually the thing you need to hear this morning that as someone who is God's creation, you're good. Like you're good. Like like some of you, you walk around and you don't know that you're you're good. I want you to know that you're good. You're good. This is why Paul wrote to the Christians in and around a city called Ephesus in Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus were not only good, but we were meant, what? For good works. Which God prepared, what? Ahead of time for us. In other words, (laughs) in other words, okay, like if God has to prepare it ahead of time for us, so sometimes, I don't know if you read the Bible this way, Like I, I like to look at the Bible, and then I read it, and I'm like, oh, um, Paul's giving advice to a church to stop being divided and have unity. That must mean what is going on there. There's probably some division and lack of unity that needs to be addressed. And so when I look at the scripture, and I look at these commands, oftentimes I understand that it's God speaking truth against the lies or speaking his realities against the broken realities which we would be tempted to take ourselves down. In other words, if God has prepared good works for us ahead of time, that means outside of being God's creation and being part of his will and being, we have what? Probably paths of our own that don't look like The good works that God has. Does that make sense? And so, in other words, God is the creator who created us to reflect his glory and enjoy his fellowship so that together we can accomplish something greater than without him that we could try to accomplish ourselves. God had a greater plan for you that was planned long ago because he knew that your plans, they wouldn't. They they might impress the people of this world, but they wouldn't impress your heart like you wouldn't be able to sleep at night and go you know what it is well with my soul you might be able to fool your neighbor making them think you have a good life but you you would lie down at bed and you be like it is not well with my soul you might be able to fool your coworkers. you might be able to fool people at church but you would know at the heart of hearts in your heart of hearts it is not well with my soul When you give your life to him, you become his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And now, while this is true about us individually, that you are God's creation, that you are made in the image of God at the core of that expression, the expression that is what the Imago Dei is the partnership of a man and a woman. Listen, you got to don't miss this. Sometimes we read the Bible too individualistically. We forget to understand the power of the intentionality of how sometimes the Bible talks to us in terms of community. Here in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about the image of God, it does not just say man. It actually refers to man and woman. In fact, You can read a lot of theologians even across the aisles on the sovereignty of God from Arminianists to Calvinists. They all have different views on that, but they all do agree that this passage of Scripture speaks to the point that there is a clear intent by the author to let us know that the image of God is seen not in just the man, but it's seen in this beautiful creation of man and woman to accomplish what God wanted to do in this world, which is what? He said, go and what? Be fruitful. Can man do that by himself? No. Can woman do that by herself? No. And so together, the the, the work of God creating in this world is now continued in this image of God that requires both men and women. And I think when you look at throughout the history of the church, there's always, wherever there's a great move of God, it always included both what? Men and women. Now, I don't really want to go into the whole subject of like women in ministry, all that kind of stuff, but if you're someone who is a hardline complementarian, you just got to wrestle with that. That just is something you got to wrestle with. All of that to say, this is the reason why the punchline in Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter five talks about this idea of what submitting to one another. Right? There's a whole section about husbands and wives, and the whole section about submitting to one another is built upon this idea that you are God's creation. And we submit out of one another out of reverence for Christ. And so while the pressure to get married isn't something that our culture at large isn't fixated on as it has been in the past, the truth is that most people believe that, get this, a romantic relationship with another person exists for my needs and my wants. Like that, that's, that's our world. That romantic relationships exist to fulfill your needs. Because why else? Why else? It, 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 romantic relationships exist to fulfill your desires. What is it that you want? And so for many people, especially those who consider themselves church people, marriage is often revered as the pinnacle of human relationships. <laughs> like, that's it! But that would be believing a lie. Because marriage is not the pinnacle of human relationships. Our relationship with God is. Our relationship with God is the pinnacle of relationships, not our marriages. To quote a mentor and sending pastor for one of the churches that made Clarity Church a reality almost ten years ago, uh he he preached the message on on, on marriage. And uh Ben McEachern, if you know him, older, wiser, um, and you know, uh, uh you might be looking at me, you know, because Asian don't raise in. You'd be like, you can't, you haven't been married that long. you, know, you know, It hasn't been, well, like 10 years, Phil, whatever. No, it's been almost 20. Uh But, you know, Ben's been almost married as long as I've been alive. And he had this, this to say about marriage uh, that I just thought was great. And, I, and I, I'm stealing it directly from his message. So great. He said this, to put marriage in that place like in that pinnacle like to put it on a pedestal he was talking more about how like people put it, marriage on this pedestal he said to put marriage in that place is to make an idol and to put it and to put on it the weight of expectations it cannot bear and this is true whether or not you believe in god or not we have made it an idol in our culture it is a it, it's a right we cannot deny anyone marriage is a right we can't deny anybody and the more weight we put on it, the more it crumbles. And the divorce rate skyrockets as people enter it with high hopes and are disappointed. Because marriage is supposed to make me happy. And I'm not saying that there isn't great joy in a good marriage. But there is something I have to tell you. Critical to a happy marriage, you don't have to be married to be happy. You can be single Celibate and whole, fulfilling all God's purposes with great glory. and Jesus taught that there is a day coming when marriage will be obsolete. Some of you are like, "What? Well, we'll talk about that. but we will be supremely happy with God, with God. Now if you didn't like that, You can reach Ben at ben at northridgefellowship.com. But I agree with Ben, so you can just send me the email. I'll forward it to him. So, big question is this. What would it look like for us to believe that God is our creator and he's created us in his image so that at the core of who we are and the core of our relationships, especially our marital relationships, we reflect God's character. For clarity's sake, I'm going to phrase these with married people in mind. But for those of you who are not married, you can easily understand the implications across all relational realities. If you really believe that what the scripture says about who God is and who we are, then we would come to understand, one, that God gives us a spouse to complement us, not complete us. I didn't say complement with an I, like Good job, babe. Uh that's not that's he didn't give us a, a spouse so we can, you know, you know. I love your cooking. <laughs> You're so sweet. Thanks for picking up your underwear. Um that's not that's not a no. compliment. Compliment. Genesis 2:18. The Lord said, "It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him." Helper Corresponding to him. I'm not the kind of person who likes to look at original language for the sake of making you somehow feel like you learned something new, um, or, you know. Uh, try, try to impress you with my abilities to pronounce Hebrew, which I'm terrible at, by the way. In fact, I remember the last time I tried to pronounce a Hebrew word, I actually had someone in the audience who spoke Hebrew fluently, and it was just embarrassing. They came up to me and said, you didn't do the right. And I was like, okay, I, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to overdo it because I didn't want to make it seem like I was trying too hard. But anyways, so I don't even try anymore. I just said, there is a Hebrew word. I know it. You can look it up on Google. But the Google, the word for there, 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 there is two words here that I do want us to take a look at. It's the words that that we have for helper in in, in this translation, uh, corresponding. Um, the first thing I want to point out is this: the original word for helper. This one, actually, by the way, uh, can you guess what it means in the original language? Helper. Good. It means helper. It actually means helper. Um, but in the English language, right? Helper is kind of used in a lot of different ways. So what I want to do is help us understand. What kind of way this actually, you know, what does helper mean? Like, for instance, in in the English language, helper can look like this, right? It can look like this, right? This is helper, right? Santa's little helper, little buddy, right? Um, And sometimes helper can look like the thing you use to make hamburger taste better, right? Hamburger, helper. That's like, we use the word helper in a lot of different ways. But in scripture, the word for helper is not buddy the elf. It's not a little glove. It's actually a word that is constantly used. Listen, the word helper here is a word in the scripture that's constantly used over and over and over again to describe, I'll say this slow so you can get it. It's used to describe God's commitment to us to make up for what we, even at our best selves, could not accomplish. Okay? So helper has to do, uh, it's, it's not that Adam was deficient and he needed something else. No. Remember, God created Adam and he looked at him and said, what? It's good. It's a good. I'm a Mario. I'm going to win. Right? He looked at it and said, it's good. So this isn't about him needing a wife to make him better or whole. This is about something completely different. So second, there's also this word corresponding, which I actually think the CSP does a really, really, really good job of, at least in 2023. I don't know, 10 years, might need a better word. But in the original language, the word can literally actually be translated. Um, So you know, God gave him a helper, and then the word in front of him, uh, the word, actually, I already said it, the word after that is, is a word that literally means in front of. Like, you're standing. Actually, it could also mean standing opposite of. Like, who's opposite of me? Oh, you're the opposite of me. So God gave a helper right there. Uh, or at the opposite, like at the other side of me. For those of you who are artists, any of you who are artists, good at art, who understand colors, any anybody? Uh, Okay, well, I'm going to take you to school because I'm not an artist, but I've become one over the years. And there's this idea of, you ever heard of complementary colors? Complementary colors, right? Complementary colors. Complementary colors. Here's the color wheel, right? An oversimplified definition of what a complementary color is, is really, it's the color that is what? At the opposite side of the color spectrum. Or of the color wheel. And when done correctly, complementary colors can make each other appear brighter. They can be mixed to create effective neutral hues. Or they can be blended together for shadows. Right? Um, I didn't make that up. I just copied it from this website called thesprucecross.com. That's what they told me. Um, I'm not an artist. But it's why... But it's... listen, listen. Listen. It's why pictures like these... Anyone know what this is? Vincent Van Gogh, right? Like, when you look at this picture, it almost, doesn't it seem like it's, there's movement? And then there's a sense of clarity, but yet you know what's being drawn here isn't a sense of clear lines. And, and, and it has to do because of the use of the blues and the orange and, and the colors and how the artist has used color to bring focus and to bring highlight to different things. Right? The artists use these two things opposite on the spectrum of each other to make something actually in just their own color would be uh, a dab, but put together actually something beautiful. You know, when Leona and I started the journey of starting Clarity almost 10 years ago, actually, it's over 10 years that Clarity is actually existent as an organization, by the way. We didn't start public gatherings in September. But um, when we started the journey of becoming church planters, we had to go through an assessment. Like, they don't just let anybody. But I know some of you are like, really? (laughs) Wow. Could have sworn they did, Phil. Um, But no. uh, At some point, we could pass an assessment, and we took one. And part of that assessment is they do, like, a psychological evaluation, both of the couples, because at the end of the day, they knew that um, healthy churches can only be started by healthy couples, okay? So it takes a healthy couple to start a healthy church. And so we went through all these different kinds of tests and screening process, personality profiles, private sessions, and, um, you know, with the professional counsel, counselor to discern whether or not we would, had the kind of marriage that would help bring health into the start of a new church. And I still remember sitting down with the counselor as he began the conversation with us. We did all the tests and then, um, you know, we, we finally get like this last one-on-one. And he kind of lays out all of his findings and he sits down with us and he goes, <clears throat> you know, Phil, Leona, uh, well, I must say, it's been an absolute joy to get to know you. At that point, I thought we were in trouble. Uh, But he goes. He went on to say, "He goes, you know, in all my years of doing this, I've only met a handful of people who were married and had your particular personality makeup." Some of you who know Leona and I, you're like, "We know." (laughs) Um, And this is because our profiles, according to this professionalist, psychologists, counselor, are classically known as, uh, and this is his words. He said, "The greatest of enemies or the greatest of lovers." Yeah, yeah, I'm the latter. He didn't know it, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's who we are. And at first, you know, we were like, "Is that a good thing or a bad thing?" Like, we we still want to know. Can we plant a church? <laughs> and attribute by attribute, he went down the line and taught, he explained to us like why and how. He basically told us that, uh well, something that we had already known by that time in our marriage, we'd almost been married 10 years. And, and he basically told us what we already knew, that Leona and I are absolutely nothing alike. That we are like literally nothing alike. I'm chocolate. No, she's you know, sour cream, you know, you know, all the different, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that just a little, little different. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> <laughs> but then he began to tell us about how our unique differences can allow us to accomplish together what neither one of us at our best could accomplish alone. And, and I'll I just... I've said this before, and I think some people misunderstand me. They, 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 when they think, oh, your differences, like your different strengths. No, 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 no. He was actually talking about our different weaknesses. Because I think sometimes we, it's easy for us to be like, oh, yeah, you're, you're good at this, and oh, I'm good at this, and like, oh, yeah, that makes it really great. But nobody wants to talk about like how the different, like, bad things. And, and he began to explain to us, like, no, actually, God uses those things for good. And because this is what God does; He gives you a spouse to complement you, not complete you. And I admit, I, I think just because in my own marriage, that's how it's always been. We've always been really opposite of each other. Um, it's 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 harder, I think, for other people to to get this idea that. The person you're married to, their job isn't to complete you, but to compliment you. I think for us it's easier, but or maybe maybe you're like you know that's not really like a big thing, Phil. You're just using two words that start with the C, um, and so there's it's just really subtle. There's not really a difference. In fact, if you look up at the dictionary, it can almost be the same thing, Phil. Um, but actually i think it's really significant and, and and let me let me put it this way as we close if you're if you're not married what if you began believing that god gave or that god gives a spouse to complement a person instead of complete a person like what if what if you started there And and would that challenge any standards that may have been changed due to an inaccurate perspective you have embraced of yourself as someone made in the image of God. Like when you think about the standards for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright If you began believing that God gives a spouse to complement instead of complete, would that challenge any standards that you have built up for yourself that are actually really inaccurate perspectives because of maybe your own insecurities, what you feel like you deserve or don't deserve? Or would that challenge maybe, on the other side, your list of requirements, you know, that list you made when you were in sixth grade of all the people, you know, all the kind of things that Mr. Wright needs to have, Mrs. Wright. you know, needs to like, you know, the Vikings, needs to like to go outdoors, but doesn't like bugs and like, you know, is 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 tall but is also short and uh, you know like you know, all these crazy stuff that you know people they make all their lists right what if what if what if this idea that god sends a spouse to complement not complete what would that challenge your list of requirements that may be driven by unchecked selfish desires and by the way if you don't think that could be you If you've ever wanted something for yourself that you knew wasn't good for you, then you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) That you might have something on your list that you want, but it's actually not good for you. And so, over the next several weeks, I hope that what we talk about through the Scriptures will help you reformulate what does it mean to or reformulate what it is that you're looking for in someone? Now, in front of the married people, what if you began believing that God gave you a spouse to compliment you instead of complete you? Like, what if you really believed that God did not give you a spouse so that they could fill an empty void in your life? That God alone is only meant to fill. And that's hard because I think a lot of us have dreams. And in this American society, the Western world, and how we view relationships, like we're taught, like our our dreams are precious. Like, you know, if you don't have dreams... Dan, what do you got? But I think there's something better. And if you're willing to cross the chasm of fear of what it means to confront, maybe your dreams have been off base. And seek God's will. Seek first His kingdom. Well, maybe, just maybe, all, you know, these other things. You know how the verse goes. Married people, what if you understood that your differences were meant to be the things through which God encourages you to be united through? So you could be partners with each other to accomplish the will of God in the world that could not be accomplished without the other. You know that thing that just makes you so frustrated about the other person. What if somehow God knew what he was doing and the journey of figuring out how God would want to sanctify and unify the both of you, as opposed to bring uniformity amongst you. Maybe you would finally understand what it means when I say God brings you a spouse to complement you, not complete you.